Good morning. So when I was here a month ago, it felt like March. And now it feels like February. And I don't know what's going on with that. But, you know, this week um, was interesting. Today, the title of today's message is True Wisdom. And I have to admit that I faced a situation at work this week that um, I wanted to respond one way. But wisdom said I probably shouldn't. Um, and so this was a fairly convicting week for me as I looked through this. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't want to be wise. Or at least thought of as being wise. It's about as near as a universal human desire as I can think of. It doesn't matter if you are a farmer or a shop worker, if you are a homemaker or a nurse or an executive or a student, it doesn't matter. We all want to be thought of as wise. And I thought about internet searches and why do we go to the internet and search things out? If there's something I don't know or I want to understand, I Google it. Uh, last, about a year or so ago, um, the heater blower on my van had a problem. Settings number one, three, four, and five worked, but setting number two, you know, the one that you really want because it, it's the one that, that works well for what you need, didn't work. It was driving me crazy. So what did I do? YouTube. You type in the make, the model, and the year of your vehicle, and chances are you're going to find a video, or 12, showing you how to fix it. And I did. Side note, those things will also reinforce your strong suspicion that auto engineers are really just trying to mess with you. Because that blower door, that little thing that I had to fix, I had to take apart half the dashboard and reach my hand into a place where a grown man's hands are not intended to fit. Like maybe if you're 12, right? That's just a side note. But if you think about the amount of lists you find on Facebook or Pinterest, the life hacks and the pro tips that we find, it's amazing. Yesterday, as I was re-going through stuff, um, I found this site, lifehack.org. And I got lost in it for longer than I should have. Um, because you find all of these interesting things. Like, I didn't know I could do that. Um, I don't get much uh, in my email inbox from retailers. I'm, I'm really scrupulous about this because I work in marketing. And I don't want to get it in my own personal inbox. And... So one I get is from a company called Rockler. They make woodworking tools and they sell woodworking tools. And they sent me an email this, this past week and there was a video for this brand new super deluxe dado set that allows you to make a couple passes and you can fold together a, a drawer. And it was fascinating. And I ended up following this guy who did the video and watching a ton of his videos this this last week on things that I could learn how to do that I didn't know how to do. It's amazing what you can find. And I remember when I was a kid, 
Huey, Louie, and Dewey got advice from Scrooge McDuck. Work smarter, not harder. And I think we can all relate. And so today, as we continue our study of James, as we move into James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, we're going to look at what wisdom is. What does it look like? And more importantly, what is its character? So, James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word this morning, I pray that the distractions of the week past and the week to come would be set aside for the moment, that we would hear from you, that my words would be your words. I know that this week, this, has, this passage has worked on my heart, and I pray that you would allow that to come through this morning as we look to the words of James on wisdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, what is wisdom? What is it, really? Is it figuring out how to do all that stuff that we use those internet searches for? Is it tips and tricks for a slightly easier life? Or is it something more than that? Think about the smartest person you know or have heard of. Could be anyone. Then think about the wisest person you know. And chances are they're not the same person. Why is that? I think it's because as important as knowing things is, being wise is more than what we know. James asks us the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And sometimes I think we confuse wisdom with what we know. We believe in education to the point where we have almost equated the two in our minds. This week I had a strong reminder of this. I have three kids. My oldest is graduating from high school this May. Now, still doesn't really know what he wants to do. Probably heading to Wabansi in the fall. Makes dad a bit nervous. You know, why? Because I have been conditioned to think, because I was conditioned to think when I was a kid, graduate from high school, go get a degree, my father is a very practical person. Go get a degree that has a skill so that you can earn a living. 
I got a degree in pastoral ministries, not particularly practical in that sense. But I have every year about this time, for my second son, Nathan, we have what's called an IEP meeting, Individual Education Plan. Nathan is autistic. Nathan is going to be a senior year in high school next year. And what we have had to determine throughout his schooling is, guess what? Nathan's probably not going to college. So what is the point of school for Nathan? It's how does he learn, yes, and there are certain things that he needs to learn and we want him to learn, but how does he learn to get along in life? And that becomes a much bigger, more conscious part of what's going on, and that is much more along the lines of what we see about wisdom in the Bible. As important as the accumulation of knowledge is, as important as education is, it's not the same as wisdom. Hopefully, our education contributes to our wisdom, but it's not the same. And I've heard it said that knowledge is the accumulation of facts and wisdom is what you do with them. The writer of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Bible totally reframes the question of wisdom for us. When we start on this quest for true wisdom, we have to understand that it doesn't begin with us, it begins with God. And when we do this, we can't help but be on a different trajectory in life, a different path to what we seek. James, we have to remember, is following in this tradition of Jewish wisdom. And James' question, who is wise among you, forces us to ask ourselves some questions. How do I view myself? Do I have too high or too low of a view of myself? And how am I defining wisdom? But what, what I or someone else knows or leads me to believe that they know? Wisdom is more than what we know. It begins with who we know. It begins with God. The second part of this question of what is wisdom is that it's seen in what we do. In verse 13, as soon as he asks the question, James essentially challenges us to prove it. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way that you live, not the way you talk, that counts. Wisdom is more than the things we know. It's more than some religious piety where we equate the fear of the Lord with going to church or towing the line of right be or accepted behavior because we have to. That was Isaiah 66. God doesn't want the sacrifices just to have the sacrifices. He wants the sacrifices connected to the right heart. 
True wisdom is found in what we do. It's active. That's what James is making clear to us. You aren't wise if you don't put your knowledge into action, if you don't live out what you say that you believe. In chapter 4, verse 17, he goes even further. He says, so then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. It's not just, well, I ought to, but eh. It's sin. Wisdom requires us to act. The question is, how will we act? In verses 14 to 18, James is going to set up a contrast for us. There's two paths we get to choose. Two ways we can go as we seek wisdom. And he acknowledges that there is a real choice here. Which way are we going to live? And sometimes I think as Christians we like to pretend that it really isn't a choice. That there's only one way. We don't want to acknowledge the reality, and maybe there's all kinds of reasons for this. We're afraid that we would compromise our faith or that we're afraid to question too hard because it might not really be true. But the psalmist tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And he complains regularly about the success of the ungodly. The truth of the matter is, there is a wisdom apart from God that we have access to. And that is a worldly wisdom. And we see it in verses 14 and 15. James says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, It's not exactly a flattering picture, I'll grant you that. But James does indicate that there is wisdom here, at least of a sort. And it's a wisdom that is more than a little bit tempting to us. And the way that James puts it here seems to indicate, at the very least, that Christians are not immune to it. And I know from my own personal experience that we're not. Because this kind of wisdom, this worldly wisdom, seeks after itself. We've heard the phrases, she's a go-getter, or he's got fire in his belly, or things like that. We applaud the person who presses on to achieve. We think about the person who sacrifices everything to get ahead. It's one of our favorite storylines in in novels and movies, the plucky hero from the hardscrabble background who achieves greatness. But there's always a danger here. It's insidious. If we're careful, if we're not careful, it will sneak up and snatch us away and snatch away our hearts before we know it. James speaks of bitter envy and selfish ambition. You see, the worldly wisdom seeks self first. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What does John point to? He points out our selfishness. The lust of the eyes, I want. The lust of the flesh, I need. 
the pride of life. Look at what I have done. I, me, myself. And the wisdom of the world seeks out self, seeks after itself. And it may well work, at least for a while. In, 1980, in the 1987 film Wall Street, Gordon Gekko notoriously says, greed is good. And the entire movie shows where selfish ambition leads, both the heights and the depths. And there was a sequel which came out in 2010, and it shows much the same picture. The truth of the matter is that worldly wisdom can be used, it will work to get you ahead, or at least it can, and for a while. And we can't deny this reality. And we've seen driven people, even Christians, ministry leaders and pastors, driven to succeed, to be a big deal, to have big ministries. And we can lie to ourselves about it. We can boast about it. And this is what James warns us about. We can find ways to justify ourselves and our selfishness to ourselves. But we have to be careful that we don't too quickly baptize the attitudes of the world and putting a, a, a Christian veneer over the top of worldly wisdom and personal vanity to make things seem good to others and to ourselves. And it's entirely possible to do so. Now I want to be very clear here. James is not saying that we should be passive. He is not saying sit back, let things happen, be content simply with things as they are, and don't work hard or seek out success. This is not what the Bible teaches. If you look at Proverbs throughout the book, it's full of admonition towards hard work, even the desire to become a leader. It extols the virtues of planning. It lambasts the lazy. And it's clear that there's nothing wrong with seeking out prosperity. We're told that we need to take care of our families. When Jews were exiled in Babylon, in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Jeremiah relates God's message to the people. Seek the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. The issue is not the desire for prosperity. The issue is why we have that desire. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's not money that's the problem, it's our love of it. Greed and envy are the root problem. And if we remember to last fall, it's one of those seven deadly sins we talked about. The heart of worldly wisdom, greed, envy, will lead to chaos. And this is what James says about this kind of wisdom. Perhaps in your Bible there are scare quotes around wisdom. There are in mine. It indicates that this is wisdom of a sort or that there's a catch coming. And what does James say? That this wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And much like the Hebrew poetry of the Old Testament, which repeats and strengthens ideas, 
James does exactly that in in succession here. The language gets stronger to make a point. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking, well, this is common sense, right? This is just practical, earthly. Perhaps we could maybe say, uh, unspiritual, well, not great really, but if I work hard enough, I can probably justify that. But there's no way around demonic. What does this kind of wisdom, this self-interested wisdom lead to? Chaos. In verse 16, where you find envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and every evil practice. You may get along for a while, but you will find yourself justifying more and more. I'm not hurting anyone becomes, I'm not really hurting anyone. Who are we trying to convince? Becomes, but this will help fill in the blank. Which becomes, I don't care, I need this. In Wall Street, the main characters both end up in jail at the end. Because of their greed. And the sequel, from what I gather, I haven't seen it, uh, but from the synopsis on Wikipedia, there was that internet search again, It doesn't seem to indicate that there's really been a change of heart in these characters. Envy, selfish ambition, greed motivates what they do. And the need for more wreaks havoc on their lives and the lives of the people around them in these films. And I find it interesting that even a worldly, completely secular film like this understands that this kind of wisdom will only get us so far, that there's something not right about it. And is it any wonder, then, that when Christians act this in a similar way, the world rejects us? I find it interesting that these kinds of stories, the stories that are frankly crass, and problematic on so many levels, speak a real truth about the way an ungodly world works. And I think sometimes we need to sit up and pay attention to the things that the world already intuitively knows because it gives us an opportunity to shine a light of what God is actually up to. Because thankfully, those kinds of stories allow us to work towards the right kind of stories. And James shows us a different path, the path of godly wisdom. As James puts it in verse 17, it's wisdom from heaven. It is fundamentally different than the self-serving worldly wisdom. Because it sets a higher standard. If worldly wisdom is focused on ourselves, godly wisdom has this different orientation altogether. As we said in the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what James begins in verse 13 comes back in verses 17 and 18. 
He sort of bookends or draws a circle around the bad behavior so that we can see and be reminded of what true wisdom is. We can see that we need to set our sights higher than self-interest. And in verse 13, James told us that wisdom was active, that is seen in a good life that is humble. And the first thing that James says about godly wisdom after describing worldly wisdom is that it's pure. You may remember from about a month ago, exactly a month ago actually, when I was here last, we were looking at James chapter 1 verses 26 and 28 and we were talking about true religion. And we were reminded that James is writing primarily to Jewish believers And in that passage, he echoed the Old Testament law, speaking of pure religion. And purity meant being set apart for and to God. And here in chapter 3, he brings that language back. We see that thinking again. He has a consistent view of both how the world does work and how the world ought to work. That it was created good, but it has been corrupted by the fall. And that the Christian, just like the Jew, was to show the world what things were supposed to be like by living to a different, a higher standard, God's standard. That we are to be set aside, pure. And James stands in that line of Old Testament wisdom literature and the teaching of Jesus, especially as we see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Be set apart. Be pure. This is the standard we are called to as believers. Not double-minded, not divided against one another. Wisdom and ethics can't be separated. In the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, the purification laws were put in place, at least in part, because being set apart for God, being holy, is not something we just drift into. We have to... Get our minds around it. We have to focus on it. These were elements put into place to keep us focused on God because our natural drift is not towards holiness, it's towards selfishness. And this is not simply a try harder kind of teaching. This is about who we are. In the previous passage, in verse 12, James asks the question, Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What's his point? Simply this. Who we are will naturally, or one might even say necessarily, work its way out in the way that we live. We all have a propensity towards selfishness. All of us. We don't have to learn it. We don't have to be taught how to be selfish. All you have to do is be around a two-year-old. And you know what it's like. And it doesn't go away. We just get better at hiding it. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how much are we willing to keep that propensity for selfishness alive? How committed are we to dying to ourselves? We know we can't get there on our own. This is, of course, the reason Jesus came. 
The good news of Jesus Christ means that we don't have to be driven by self-centered and greedy wisdom anymore. Jesus said that if we're going to follow him, we have to do what? Take up our cross. Now, that's a phrase that gets thrown around in church circles a lot. And I think we forget what that means. Die to yourself, quite literally. Not only die, but die in the most humiliating, hideous kind of way possible. The cross was the way that Rome killed insurrectionists and traitors. The worst offenders. And Jewish law said in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. You don't die a more lowly death. And that is what Jesus evokes. Die to yourself. And Paul in his letters, especially in Galatians and Romans, tells us that we have been crucified with Christ and that we are raised to new life in him. That we are no longer our own. That we are his. We are, quite literally, he says in Romans 6, slaves to righteousness. Not our own. We are set apart to God. We don't get to claim our own desires and our own thoughts and our own wishes and our own self-interest any longer. And in a culture that prizes self-fulfillment and self-actualization, that focuses so strongly on happiness through finding and defining our own identities, this is an increasingly difficult teaching to take. Even much of Christian wisdom, books and speakers and music, essentially promotes a sort of spiritualized self-help. Help me be a better me. But look at what James is saying about the wisdom of heaven here in verse 17. He gives us a list after being pure, it is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. Sounds suspiciously like a couple of other lists in Scripture. If you turn quickly to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul gives a list that we have all heard of before, the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Sounds suspiciously similar, doesn't it? For all who would say that Paul and James are opposed, I would point to these two passages. Wisdom in the pen of James sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit, or excuse me, wisdom is often personified as the voice of God. And I don't think that's a coincidence. 
I think that James is evoking some of this when he talks about wisdom. And that true wisdom is both from and empowered by God. James' list also sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Peace-loving, he says in verse 17, is the opposite of envy that he lists in verse 14, and we're going to see next week in chapter 4, verse 1. It's no small thing to be peace-loving, and it's at the heart of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Consider it or gentle, James says. It indicates a willingness to accept others as they are. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Submissive or willing to yield to others. What could be more opposite of selfish ambition? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Full of mercy and good fruit, James says, the opposite of every evil practice. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown merciful, Jesus says. Impartial, James says, being free from prejudice. In this context, it's probably relating to the poor, as we've seen in the previous chapter. But it certainly goes deeper than that. And I believe here we see Jesus' admonition, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Sincere is the last. Literally, this word is not hypocrites. Genuine, trustworthy. One who refuses to pretend to be what they're not, even if it is in their best interest to do so at the time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be called the children of God. This is what wisdom looks like, and this is where true wisdom comes from. A higher standard. It's one that begins with God and extends to others. Jesus in Mark 12, when he's asked for the heart of the law, says, love God and love others. It looks like this list for wisdom from James. Finally, God's wisdom leads to peace. It's not by accident that peace comes up twice here in these last two verses. It's also not by accident that verse 18 circles back around to what began in verse 13. James is telling us the heart of the matter, the heart of wisdom. Peacemakers plant seeds of peace. It's work. It's going to require effort, just like a farmer planting a seed. And the results are not instant. Seed needs time and water and fertilizer and sun. And it first needs to die before it germinates. We live in a period of strife. We are an unsettled people and It feels like the more I watch the news, the more unsettled we become, even as the church of God. And fixing this is not going to be an overnight enterprise. I recently read a story about how evangelicals are the one group that Americans, one religious group that Americans have not warmed up to over the past few years. And I wonder why. 
There's a part of me that simply thinks this is fulfilling what Jesus said. They hated me first, they're going to hate you. And I believe that that's true. At least in part. But I wonder how much of the hate is for the message and how much it is for the messenger. If we planted seeds of peace first, instead of seeking out righteousness, how would we be viewed if we were planting and continually planting? Because the interesting thing that James says is plant seeds of peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. The story of Christianity is not exactly a popular one. The truth that we believe, that we are called to live out, is that we can't reach God on our own. We can't save ourselves, but God has already done it for us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that we can be at peace with God because of him. That truth may not be popular, but it is freeing. And James tells us that we don't achieve righteousness by demanding it. It's when we sow seeds of peace that we reap a harvest of righteousness. If we want right conduct before God, that's what righteousness is. We have to change the crop. Our good deeds, our lives lived in humility and wisdom are the starting point. They point to Christ. They point our neighbors to a reality that has and has been and is changing us. They point beyond the earthly, the unspiritual, the demonic wisdom that puts self in the driver's seat. Because the message of Gordon Gecko is not that greed is good in the end. The message is that It'll work for a while. It will tear down everything around you. True wisdom, wisdom from heaven, is the wisdom that is set apart for God. Pure, holy, it seeps into us, changing who we are so that we live out a life that others see and desire. And how would our world our country, our neighborhoods, even our families change if we started by sowing seeds of peace. True wisdom, godly wisdom, elevates peace and leads to righteousness. Right living before God. And that brings the true peace of reconciliation to both God and one another. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us access to true wisdom, your wisdom from heaven, and that when we are willing to accept it, that when we are willing to take it, it will lead us not to selfish places, but to genuine peace. And it is in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.